0: Good morning, Grace. Thank you for singing like that. It was so helpful to hear you all singing to the Holy Spirit. Do you realize how we started that hymn? It's very important Holy Spirit, living breath of God. And then we address these words to Him. I mean, I think typically we sing to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. But in this case, we were singing to the Spirit. And I think. Even though the general pattern what I said just now, I, I think that it's entirely right to sing to the Spirit for the particular role He plays in our lives. For, mu- for much of my life as a Christian, I feel like my relationship with the Holy Spirit was a bit like a distant relative. You know, you love Him, you're appreciative of Him, you know Him, but you just don't interact very much. <laughs> Well, I'm so thankful that changed years ago and I realized how incredibly important the Holy Spirit is to our lives, that we depend on him. For everything for the truth of the gospel of jesus christ to take root in our hearts the way it does we're dependent on the spirit for conviction of sin for the power to live the christian life to bear the fruit of the spirit to understand the word he inspired as he illumines our minds to bring assurance that we're children of god as his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're just that so he, he couldn't be more important to our lives than he is, but we can easily neglect him. And I pray that as we're preaching through 1 Corinthians, as we preach through this passage this morning, we will grow in our profound appreciation for the Spirit's work in our lives and how utterly dependent we are on that work. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As we continue to preach through this this great book of the Bible, we find a very important message this morning. The Apostle Paul has been writing to his people and trying to help them to realize that what he's preaching is the truth. And although he may not be as impressive as those Corinthian public speakers, he is bringing the truth of God that alone can save them and alone can lead them to true wisdom. And so he's been contrasting so-called worldly wisdom, wisdom that's, that's from the world, and the true thing, God's wisdom. And he's been talking about how foolish the cross of Jesus Christ as a way of solving our greatest problems is from the world's perspective And now he turns a corner because he doesn't want to leave us with the impression that wisdom isn't something we desperately need and wisdom isn't something wonderful and from God that we should seek for every day. He wants us to know true wisdom and find it in the right way and become the right people who understand the wisdom of God contrasted with the wisdom of this world. So 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, beginning of verse 6, is where we will begin. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to be changed, to be helped, to be encouraged and blessed and comforted and convicted by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart Wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified Spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of the mind of christ wow so this is incredibly important and incredibly helpful to us because it is teaching us how to discern the difference between worldly wisdom and true wisdom from god that actually leads to the greatest goals god has for our lives that gets to those goals in God's way, in God's design. So this is so helpful to us because we can spend our lives seeking things in well-intentioned efforts to find wisdom, and it ends up being something that's only temporary, that's only fleeting, that's just shallow. And we don't want to settle for that. Do you want to settle for just temporary wisdom, temporary wise ways of living, or lasting, eternal ways of living? I am desperate for wisdom. You know, I I must say, I I think for much of my life, I've liked people rather easily. It's not hard for me. I I like people, even really annoying people. I, I tend to like them. Um, which is why I don't have a hard time liking myself. But I, I, um, I generally like people. I would even say I generally love people. I have loving affections for people and loving intentions for people. I do. I'm just amazed at how rude people are to each other very often and, and how they obviously don't care about people, especially on the Internet. And when they're hiding behind their screens. But it's just incredible how terribly people treat people. And I would say God has given me a love for people. But what I've recognized a tremendous lack in myself for is knowing how to love people well, helpfully, for their good. There are many times I have had well-intentioned desire and even resources to love someone, and it backfires. It ends up being counterproductive. It's just not actually helpful, even because it just lacks any helpful effect, or sometimes... They get exasperated by my efforts or, or frustrated by my efforts or feel judged by my efforts. And, and so, so often I can be so confused about how to love well as a husband and as a father and as a pastor and as a prof of dear students. I just have been entrusted this semester with almost 200 new students this semester. And I look out at them and I know how different they are. I look out at all of you and I know that I've already offended some of you for some reason. (laughs) And I don't want to do that, but I already have, I bet. Maybe you just don't like me. I don't know. And I want to be all things to all people. I do. I want to do whatever it takes to help and love you well as as one of your pastors here at Grace. But so often I lack wisdom and I go to the Lord asking for it. I lack it. Never forget... I've never felt the need, desperate need for wisdom more on a daily basis than when I became a father. My wife is incredibly easy to be married to, but but my kids, I I, I love no, no, I love my kids. They're amazing kids. They're, they're just delightful children. I do love them, but but I want to help each of them grow in their lives, moving from foolishness to maturity and godliness and all these things but so often I'm just not sure how to do that well and I've had so many conversations with parents because I'm relatively a rookie at parenting I've only been at it 12 years and I'm 55 and so You know, I'm I'm better at a lot of other things, a few other things in my life than parenting. At that, I just feel like such a rookie at this. So I will often ask parents, "What do you do for discipline? How do you discipline kids in a way that's effective?" It's been amazing how often it's uh, uh, is is the answer I get, Uh, and I'll never forget. we had this honeymoon period when we adopted Caroline, and she was just delightful, and we had such a good time, and I said, well, I'm just going to be such a good dad, and I just, I haven't had much practice at all, but, but I think I could do this, and so I'll never forget, she did something that required significant discipline after we got here, and she'd only been in the States for about a week and a half, and it was time to bring the discipline, and I said, so what do I do? How do I do this, you know? Often found timeouts were kind of an interesting thing. I just go over by yourself. Some kids love that, right? Great! <laughs> All right? What do you do? So I said, I know. I'm going to take James away. James was this lamb, stuffed animal. We sent her in the orphanage about almost a year before we adopted her, and it had become her most precious stuffed animal. She never let go of it, she carried it around, she put it through the the x-ray machine at the airport, they let her do that. And she carried around And it was her favorite stuff to animal And I said, this is serious enough to take James away. I hope she's not devastated. I, I hope she doesn't feel, you know, it's too tough. So I said, but I think I, think I got to do this. So I took James away, and I tried to explain it to this little kid who only spoke Mandarin. And I, she got it. She, she understood what was going on, what she had done. This was the consequence. Okay, yeah, I got it. And I left the room feeling like, oh, man, I hope I didn't just crush her. So I go down and I put James on the chair and then I go over and I start working, right? About 90 seconds later, Caroline comes down the hallway and into my study with all of her stuffed animals. (laughs) All of them. And dumps them on the chair with James. And gives me this look like You thought you had leverage? You got nothing. And I just sat there thinking, oh, what have we here? I was afraid I would crush her. And I met Rambo, right? Um, So... I thought, well, I'm going to have to rethink this. Lord, help me. What do I do? And it's just been, it's been like that all along. Y'all. We adopted Sam. And I'll never forget the first time I really got in Sam's face. Just He did something. That I needed to bring the dad hammer. And I, I was this close to him. And he's trying to look all tough. But he couldn't help it. Tears just started coming to us. And I said, oh, oh, we got something different here. We got something different. Let me back up a little bit here. I, and guys, I need wisdom desperately. And so my instinct is to read books and figure this out and talk to wise parents and that's all good, right? But if I'm not careful, I could get my eyes off of God's ultimate goals for my kids and for myself in this whole thing. And you know what I could end up doing? Behavior management figure out kid hacks so that we at least look fairly healthy in public. (laughs) Um, You know, stars on the fridge. Whatever it takes, we we gotta sort this thing out. We gotta, we gotta be a healthy family. And so, but if I'm not careful, I could easily get into teaching morals and behavior management and coping mechanisms, which are all fine. I'm not I'm not saying those can't be helpful, but in the process, I can miss God's greatest goals for my kids and for me in all of this, which is knowing Him. Which is glorifying Him, which is living lives that matter and last into eternity. Huge difference. Huge difference. See, there's a deceptiveness to practical ways of living that work. There's probably never been a culture more prone to what's called pragmatism, just orienting everything around what works. However you define success. I want this goal, so I do it this way, and it works. Look, and now I'll write a book about it, and everybody else will do it for a while. But there can be a hollowness to it. There can be a, a temporary nature to all of this. There can be a short-sightedness to all of this that can leave our lives tragically empty and tragically not connected to God or his purposes for our lives. So we, we need to know the difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom, and you just need to be ready to have some of your intuitions, some of your desires, some of your plans and goals, some of your ways of getting to those plans and goals completely trashed. And they need to be replaced with a whole new way of thinking that comes from God and not from worldly wisdom. There's a huge difference. Now hear me, I am not saying it's not smart and good to figure out the ways things work practically, psychologically, emotionally, financially, organization. Those those are good things and please don't hear me that I have no place for those. But you can miss the most important things and live for the far less important if you're not aware of the difference. And thankfully, God shows us the difference in this passage. We can be practically wise and say, managing our finances, uh, managing our investments, managing our family, managing our lives. You know, if you want a successful book, start with writing a self-help book that says 10 ways to whatever. We love that stuff. People make entire careers out of being those kinds of life coaches. And very often, they are temporarily helpful, but don't give the kind of help God knows we need and is happy to give us, but only in his way. So we can become practically wise and lose our souls and end up ourselves and leading those who follow us to become nice, moral people who don't know God or live for eternity. Let's not be those kinds of people. And what do we learn here? We learn in verses 6 through 10 what true wisdom is. We learn in verses 10b through 14 how we get it. And we learn in verses 14 through 16 the difference between the people who get it and the people who don't got it so we've got a what a how and a who let's talk about the what what is wisdom what what's the difference between a stitch in time saves nine and God's wisdom well it's all about that It's all about the cross. It's all about what we've been talking about since the beginning of this book we read and are now preaching through. It's about true wisdom, which is all about Jesus Christ on a cross in your place and not your self-effort or figuring things out. It's about Jesus being sent by his Father because he so loved you He knew you needed a savior so you could have your sins forgiven and have your disobedience now obedience in Jesus so he sent his own son to die in your place to walk this earth for 33 years obeying all of God's laws because you don't obey his laws and paying the penalty for your sin because you couldn't do it and desperately needed him too. True wisdom is about a carpenter named Jesus from a nowhere backwater village called Nazareth who came to save the world with his perfect righteousness and perfect sacrificial death and restore our relationship with God. You were created for God, for him, to glorify him with your life, to enjoy him as your greatest treasure And we all, every one of us, don't do that in our sin, in our fallen human natures. None of us starts in the right direction. None of us starts off with a great relationship with God. We all start off, the Bible says, having veered from God's ways and from God. Not only veered from it, but as God-haters, we make ourselves little gods. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of ourselves, is how the Bible puts it. For the the work of the creature rather than the creator. And so the wisdom of the world, as Moyer said last week, will tell you to know yourself, to educate yourself, to treat yourself, to sculpt yourself. Sculpt yourself. Wouldn't that be easy just to chip things off, right? Uh, Just amazing. You know, most people hate their bodies and especially certain things about them. It's amazing how much we hate what God has created. And it's showing up in all kinds of crazy ways in our society. I want to know, how do people know how old I am out there and start sending me mail for old guys? How do they know that? How do they know I just turned 55? And so I'm susceptible to mail-like and on the computer. It's time to get the body you always deserved. Body, I deserve. No, I I got the one I got. And I deserve one that's dying and falling apart and losing something every day. Uh, And and so, yeah, sculpt your body. That's what the world tells you is most important. Enrich yourself, beautify yourself, improve yourself, fulfill yourself. And here comes Jesus. And you know what he says? Lose yourself. Die to self. Not just once, not just five times, not just 500 times, but every single day. Take up your cross daily, and follow me, the one who lived a form, Christ-formed, Christ-centered life, cross-centered life. Follow me, the man of sorrows. Follow me, the crucified Lord of glory. That's the one we follow. And so dying to self, laying down our lives, it's so counterintuitive. We don't get this from the world. You know, I actually lose sleep at night thinking about how little time most Christians spend ingesting truth. Compared to all the other garbage. You know, as a pastor, I think, you know what? For most Christians, they'll give you an hour a week, about three weeks a, year, a month. And at three hours a month to try to counteract constant messages of self absorption and shallow living? That's a tall order. I'm glad the Spirit of God is powerful enough and that we are increasingly not settling for, I'll give you an hour a week, but I'm just going to get bombarded by billboards and the internet and television and, and movies and music with all of these messages that are worldly wisdom, that may have truth in them, may have quite a bit of truth to them, but are missing the guts of what really matters. I don't want, I don't want to live for what doesn't matter. I don't want to give myself to anything that isn't going to truly give me life. So I better know what wisdom is. Well, let's start with just wisdom in general. Here's a good definition of wisdom. God always knows, some of you in here know this by heart. So cool, I know you do because you had my character of God class. And it's God always knows and chooses the best means to those goals. Isn't that good? God never has misinformation leading to him to have the wrong goals for you he's always got the very best goals for you which is ultimately his glory and your eternal good and not only does he have those goals he knows how to get there in the very best way it's not enough to have the right goals you need to have the right ways of getting there in God's ways are the ways And so it's not just having the right goal. It's the means to it that you need to pay attention to God as well. That That's a great difference. And the second part is helpful too. Wisdom is a a belief thing, but it's also an affections and behavior thing. It's a moral as well as an intellectual quality. It's knowing the right things, but it's having those right beliefs invade your life and heart and transform you. See, this is the difference. Uh, So so this is what wisdom is. And and this idea of wisdom is a precious, wonderful truth about God. Let me let a far better theologian explain it, J.I. Packer. Listen to what he says. Omniscience, God's all-knowing. Governing omnipotence, God's all-powerful. Infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom, in other words, is a basic biblical description of the divine character. Wisdom without power would be pathetic a broken reed power without wisdom would be merely frightening but in god boundless wisdom and endless power are united and this makes him utterly worthy of the fullest worship i feel like we should just turn it back over to kenny and just worship god in light of this realization how wonderful that everything that's true of god is perfectly infused with his knowledge of and ability to accomplish the very best and he knows how to do it and he's able to do it that's why power by itself would be terrifying but wisdom by itself would be useless and so God is this perfect combination and intersection of all of these wonderful truths and his wisdom is woven through all of it. You know, it's interesting. I teach theology and I teach who, who is God and it's, it's wild to watch uh, when we learn about God. Sometimes we learn things we don't like about him. Like he's the sovereign king over everything and we think, well, that's generally a good idea but I wish he reserved certain areas to my control because I think I know this better than him. Uh, or or we, we think about his power, or his, his wrath, or his hatred of sin, and we say, oh, I don't like him. We think about his jealousy, and we say, no, that, that can't be good. I wish he weren't that way, but I'm kind of stuck with how he is, I guess. Instead of saying, no, his wrath, his anger, his hatred of sin and evil, his jealousy, oh, they're perfectly wise things about him. And now I'm good. I I, I want him to be all the things that he is because he's wise in all those things. So unlike myself, and so unlike you, I bet, quite often. So wisdom is this wonderful, precious aspect of who God is. And this this can be a lofty thing, but do you realize how often the Bible combines the teaching of God's power and his wisdom? Listen to Job 9.4. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. And so often in the Bible, thinking of God's wisdom leads us to praise. Romans 16, 27, he's the only wise God. And so to God alone belongs all the wisdom and power and counsel and understanding. And so we see God's wisdom as a precious thing. And we want to know him. And that's the only way you get to real wisdom is by knowing God. Oh, you can figure out how life works on a human level. But you can't have true wisdom unless you know God as he really is. That's why the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You may figure lots of things out, but if you don't have a fear of the Lord, a true understanding of God that gives you a a fear of him, a healthy one, and a, a respect for his word and an obedience to him and a an dependence on him, you'll never get the true wisdom. Wisdom's not something God gives you sort of independent of himself. It only follows God like a shadow, right? God, God's presence casts a shadow and, and it covers us with wisdom. And so we understand God's wisdom when we understand God. So actually, we don't seek wisdom primarily. We seek God primarily, and wisdom comes with him. That's how it works. We've got to get it right. And so that means we seek him and realize his wisdom is deep and precious and valuable. And sometimes in the daily, we're just not sure what's the wisest thing. And so we seek him and, and dependence on him, his leading, his empowering, his help realizing, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. But there's a beautiful simplicity in understanding God's wisdom because it's not something we fundamentally understand in the dailies, but in the fundamental truth of God for us in Christ. That's what wisdom is. The most important wisdom is seen in Christ, in our place on a cross. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, look, 122, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There it is again. Wisdom and power coming together and seen most clearly in Jesus as is everything else about God, seen most clearly in Jesus and acutely focused on the cross of Christ as he takes our place in his ultimate display of self-sacrificial love. That's true wisdom. And there's a big difference between this and what the world often considers wise. And so the wisdom of the world is so different than the wisdom of the cross. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's it's something that's so different than we would think, but it's the way of Jesus on a cross, in our place for our sins. And then we find out the how. Okay, that's what I want. I want lasting, eternal, life-saving wisdom. How do I get it? How do I get it? Look, At verse 10, halfway through. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? Again, if you want to know wisdom from God, you need to know God. And how do you know that? Through the person of the Spirit. He's the one who brings God's wisdom to us. It's using a a, Example from human psychology. Who knows your thoughts better than you? Even those who know you best. Even Donna, who knows me better than anybody on earth, often has no idea what I'm thinking. And I'm really glad. And I'm glad you all don't know what I'm thinking half the time. Have you ever had those thoughts throughout the day? Boy, I'm glad these people have no idea what I was just thinking. Because I was thinking about nothing but myself. Not them at all. or, Or a host of other things that would be terrifying. But your inner life is something only you are privy to and God is. And that's true of him too. Who knows the thoughts of God, especially the deep things of God, except God and so this God the spirit brings the deep things of God to us see think don't think mystery here don't think uh this idea of the the foolishness of the gospel that's so incomprehensible to the world as something that's really really hard to understand it can be on the daily but here we're talking about something that had previously been unrevealed but now is revealed It's not some mystery we're trying to crack the case. It's God revealing his ways for us in Christ. And that's revealed now. And that's what we base our lives entirely on. We find this wisdom through the Spirit's work. He searches the deep things of God. He alone knows, because he is God, the deep things of God. And no one comprehends these things but him and those to whom he imparts this wisdom. So the deep things of God is something only God experiences and understands, and then the deep things of God are something we, his people, start to understand and grow in our understanding of. How do we do it? We have received not the spirit of the world, verse 12, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so we find this wisdom through the Spirit's work. He is the essential person in the Trinity of God now revealing these truths to us. Look, you can understand the reasonableness of the Bible's teaching. You can understand it really well. You can understand the logic of it. You can understand the sensibility of it, but we're talking about something here different than just intellectual understanding. And I'm convinced there are some of you sitting here who have actually a pretty solid understanding of the truths of what we're talking about, but it's never been transforming truth. It's truth that has filled your thinking, but not filled your heart and changed you forever. I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves Christians and even most people who know them think they're Christians, but this truth has never taken hold of their lives in a way where they don't just discern in the sense of figuring it out, but they discern it in judging it to be the source of their life and the source of their identity now and everything to them. And they're never the same because they beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I find it so refreshing when I read philosophers and thinkers who are honest about this, like Nietzsche. Nietzsche thought the way of the cross was idiocy. And he thought turning the other cheek or loving your enemy was absolute foolishness. And I respect his logical consistency. But many of us can agree intellectually with the truths of the good news about Jesus, but not be transformed by these truths. And it's nothing short of a miracle of the Spirit of God that makes those things more than just information in our heads. And that's what we're talking about here. This, this word for discerning, it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to translate, but it means to make a judgment about. This judgment that this is my life now. This defines me. This identifies me. You know, I, I met a guy who also was very refreshing. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching at Hume Lake at a young adult's retreat, the first message I preached on common misconceptions about the will of God. Ten common misconceptions about the will of God. And, and uh, right when I'm done, a guy makes a beeline up to me. Good looking Asian guy, mid-20s, and he comes up and he says, Hey, I'm not a Christian, but I'm interested. And you said some things that really made sense. So can we talk No, I'm too busy. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, as long as you want, man, as long as you want. And we had these amazing conversations. And he was so aware of his attitude and his thinking and how different it was than the Christian way of thinking. He said, look, I'm really successful. Already in my mid-20s. I I live up in San Francisco. I work in the software industry. I'm really successful. And I'm really talented. And I work hard. And I think I deserve all the credit. And he said, and I know that's completely different than the Christian worldview you were just talking about. And he said, but something you were saying was making sense. But I gotta tell you, it's gonna be a hard sell for me because I see no reason not to take all the credit. And so we had these amazing interactions and conversations, and, and I felt like something was happening. But, you know, the last night I said, if anybody wants to turn from their sin and trust Jesus, raise your hand, and I'll look right over at him. <laughs> and he just sat there kind of smiling at me. It, it made sense to him. He understood it intellectually. But he just wanted to be his own God. That's exactly how I put it to him. And he said, I know that's what you think as a Christian. But I'm good with that. I appreciate that because at least he's past self-deception in this. Right? We all battle this every day, don't we? Uh, but he needs to come to the end of himself so he can get to the foot of the cross. That's what needs to happen. That, that's what I'm praying for for him Still. He needs to realize that we were all in the same boat he's in, our own little gods. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, someone who took the punishment of God and the wrath of God on himself for us to be received by faith, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we need to get to. See, that's the heart of true wisdom. That's the starting point of true wisdom. If you don't start your quest to be wise there, you'll never be wise in God's eyes. You may have the world by the tail. You may have it all figured out and die in your sins. You may lead a great life, virtuous, and die in your sins and be an example to people of a life that was only lived under the sun. You see, there's glory, we're told, in this passage. right? It's for our glory in verse 7 that we're considered fools because we're seeking a greater glory. We're not satisfied with a lesser glory. And that's why verses 14 and 16 says it's actually something the Spirit gives you, this wisdom, but he doesn't give you this wisdom without making you a different person than you were. We all start as natural or flesh people and the Spirit of God comes and he changes us into spiritual people. People who are living according to the Spirit's wisdom and the Word of God now in His ways. Those are the truly wise ones. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me. I think more than ever in my life, we are divided by con- a, a, a myriad thing, myriad things. You know, the, we're constantly dividing ourselves by all sorts of things, right? Personality types. Well, I'm an introvert or I'm a seven. Or I'm a J-E-D-P. or I'm or online. It's all which Disney princess are you? <laughs> right, I'm Ariel. Right, I, uh, we just love. You. Who am I? I got to figure out who I am. Or I, I am my race. I am my culture. I I am uh, all these things. I, I am my desires. I am my temptations. I am my financial status. I am my background, my experiences. I am my wounds. I am my accomplishments. We love to divide ourselves by all these different things. And God comes along and says, nah, just two kinds of people. Just two. <laughs> the spiritual and the natural. Those living according to how they booted up and those living according to the Spirit's transforming work in their lives. Just two kinds of people. Do you see it? Two kinds. Spiritual or natural, flesh or spirit-enabled people. Our true identity then comes through the Spirit's work. See, that's why there's no place for self-boasting in our boasting in Christ. Humble and Christian should always go together. Actually, tragically, this passage has been used to create an elitism within the church. Oh, we're the spiritual ones. We're the ones who have insight, and we're beyond correction, we're beyond discipline. It's the opposite conclusion you come to. No, the Spirit does this, and we humbly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in the process of growing together, and the Spirit makes us a different person than we were before. We're we're spiritual people, which means we have now discerned, we've judged the truths of the gospel of Jesus in our place on a cross as everything to us now. I never feel more dependent on the Spirit's work than when I'm preaching the gospel to someone like I am now and and, and just as much when I'm sitting across a table from them. I'm looking at them in the eyes like I was with this young man at Hume thinking somehow this guy needs to become convinced that a carpenter naked and bleeding on a cross 2,000 years ago changed everything. Oh Lord, please do a work in his heart. It's not going to be about my persuasive words or, or all the background I have God will use that. But the Spirit of God needs to change this heart, He needs to change this mind. And we've got to see the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom. And you know, I love funerals. I'm so thankful for funerals. I try to go to funerals whenever I'm able. I don't have a hobby, I think, but if I had one, that'd be the closest thing. I went to Chuck Stein's funeral yesterday. He went to our church for almost 10 years. His wife, Lenore, went for almost, th- has been going to great, Lenore, are you here? Um, for almost 30. She became a Christian ye- decades ago. But Chuck was completely resistant. But man, what a good dude. Firefighter for 33 years, served his country in the military nobly, good dad, good loyal husband, great grandfather, loving, generous, supportive, tough, hardworking, working two jobs for the kids. So many great things about him, but no need for Jesus. Lenore prayed for him for years. People in this church prayed for Chuck for years. He got sick when he was 80. Went in the hospital, and a tatted-up guy named Vince, who loves Jesus, visited Chuck to tell him about Christ. Chuck told him to leave the first couple times. But eventually, Vince led Chuck to the Savior. And he came home, and he said to his family, I found Jesus. And the last almost 10 years of his life were completely different. Now, I don't want to minimize all the good about 33 years as a firefighter and being a a faithful husband and a loving grandpa. I don't want to minimize those things. But Chuck came to the realization that if that's all his life was about, his life ends as a tragedy. And even though they'll say all kinds of good stuff about him at his funeral, There's not going to be eternal life and there's not going to be eternal benefit from his example because it was just lived under the sun. So for the last 10 years, he came to grace and he grew and he learned to love Jesus and to hear his family yesterday express their gratitude that their dad wasn't just a good guy, but he loved Jesus and he lived for what really lasted. Chuck realized that being a good guy wasn't enough. Being a good guy can actually convince you you don't need Jesus. Chuck and Lenore and his family wanted Don Allen to preach the gospel as powerfully and clearly as he did yesterday because they wanted Chuck's death to be a wake-up call like he needed to anyone who was there. Do you think being a good guy is all it's about? think being nice and being better than most is what it's all about. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He murdered Christians for a living. How do you leave that past behind? By depending on the grace of God the same way we all leave our past and our sins behind. By depending on Jesus alone. And you know I just want to ask you are you a spiritual person or a natural person? Maybe you've come to realize this morning that you you knew a lot of stuff, but it's, it's never really taken over. And it's not just enough to be a spiritual person. He's actually writing to Christians, and he begins the next chapter by saying, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, and I have to feed you milk, not solid food. See, so Christians can be spiritual people, but not live that way. And, and so whether you're someone realizing, wow, I'm, I'm not living by the Spirit, I, I'm not being taken over by Jesus in my place, or if you are somebody who's been living a spiritual life but realizing you're, you're living in immaturity, well, this passage is for all of us this morning, all of us, to rest in the finished work of Jesus like never before, maybe some of you for the first time. And if that's true, please come up and pray with the people who will be praying with you after the service or me. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. If you're someone who wants to uh, grow far more than you have been, pray with somebody before you leave. The people up front or someone you know here who will pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the finished work of Jesus. Thank you for the powerful work of the Spirit that makes us new creatures in Christ that takes off blinders and softens hard, rebellious hearts and uh, brings us to Yourself and makes us people who live in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, uh, enabled by the Spirit to know true wisdom and live according to it. Lord, I I pray that the Spirit would be working right now and not stop working until the work in each of our hearts is bringing us to You in transforming ways.